Let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles uh, this morning to Genesis 43. We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis, and as we continue in our study of this book, we come to Genesis chapter uh, 43, and my goal uh, this morning is to cover uh, verses 1 through uh, 34, and the title of the message this morning is The Shalom That Follows Surrender. The shalom that follows uh, surrender. You know, a lot of distance gets covered in our uh, chapter uh, today. Uh, Genesis 43 is a chapter that uh, begins with the words, Now the famine was severe, and the chapter ends in Egypt with the words, They feasted and drank freely with him. Speaking of Joseph's brothers feasting together with Joseph in his house. And in between those two moments is an incredible moment of surrender in the life of Jacob. We don't see this, um, I don't think, in any of the English translations. But the word shalom uh, shows up four times in Genesis chapter 43, and they all come after Jacob's moment of surrender. Uh, The word shalom is the Hebrew word for peace, uh, and it speaks of wellness and of uh, flourishing. In verse 23, Joseph's servant will speak to Joseph's brothers, and literally in the Hebrew, he will say shalom to you. In verse 27, we're told that Joseph checks in on his brothers and asks them about their shalom. Uh, In verse 27, he will ask them a question saying, does your old father have shalom? And they will answer him by saying, literally, your servant, our father, has shalom. In verse 18, we're told that Joseph's brothers were Afraid, But upon seeing their fear, Joseph's servant speaking for Joseph will say to them in verse 23, do not be afraid. By the midpoint of this chapter, Joseph's brothers will be put very much at ease and they will find themselves enjoying table fellowship with the Lord of the land of Egypt. Partly because of the integrity that they have shown partly because of their father's surrender and utterly because God is just simply a gracious God. Amen. In the last chapter, just a review for a couple minutes here to help set the stage for what we're going to see in this chapter. Joseph sees his brothers for the very first time in 22 years since they sold him into slavery uh, because of the famine that was severe in the land of Canaan, uh, Jacob had sent all of his sons, you'll recall, 10 of them except Benjamin to purchase grain in Egypt, but he didn't send Benjamin because he didn't want any harm to come to him. He didn't want that, but seems like he was more okay with harm coming to his other sons than to Benjamin. When Joseph sees his brothers after they arrive in the land of Egypt, he has no idea of the state of their hearts. So he conceals his true identity from them and begins to test them. He speaks harshly to them and accuses them of being spies. In the course of defending themselves, 
Joseph's brothers reveal that they have a younger brother who is still at home with his father in the land of Canaan. Well, Joseph acts like he doesn't believe their denials, that they're spies. He throws his brothers in prison for three days, and at the end of three days, he tells them that he will keep one of them in prison and send the rest of them home in order to get their brother and to bring their brother back in order to prove that they are not spies. At this point, Joseph overhears his brothers talking amongst themselves, and he hears them say, truly, we are guilty concerning our brother. He hears them as they speak about their sin against Joseph from 22 years prior. He sees that they are broken with guilt over what they did against him. And he hears them conclude that their present troubles are coming now upon them because of what they did to Joseph 22 years ago. Joseph is so moved by what he hears that he turns aside and he weeps. After he regains his composure, he binds Simeon in front of his brothers and he secretly orders that their purchase money be put in their sacks of grain. When Joseph's brothers return to Canaan, they all discover the purchase money in their sacks of grain, and they become very much afraid. They are just sure that the money in the mouth of their sacks will make them look like thieves, making their return to Egypt even more dangerous. When Joseph's brothers get home to their father, they do their best to persuade their dad to let Benjamin return with them on their next trip to Egypt. But in the final verse of Genesis chapter 42, We read, but Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to the grave in sorrow. And this is where things ended last Sunday. Not in a good place at all. Jacob is clinging to his now favorite son, Benjamin, refusing to let him go. And Joseph's brothers are feeling condemned over their sin against Joseph, and they're very much afraid at the thought of traveling to Egypt again. But God is a patient God. Some of his greatest miracles are slow-motion miracles. A few months evidently go by, And by the time we come into our chapter today, we see that God has moved Jacob and his sons forward to a much better place where they're ready to make some wise choices that will lead to their experience of shalom. And this is how we'll break down our study of this chapter. We'll observe seven developments in the story of how Joseph's family comes into the experience of the shalom that is being described in this amazing chapter. The first development is this. Judah pleads with Jacob to send Benjamin to Egypt with them. Observe what happens beginning in verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, So it came about when they had finished eating the grain, which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, go back and buy us a little food. 
But Judah, Jacob's son, is not about to make that trip without Benjamin. So look at verse 3. Judah spoke to him, however, saying, The man, speaking of Joseph, solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And so Judah says to Jacob, If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. You'll notice that Judah refers to Joseph as the man twice, not knowing what else to call him. In this chapter, there's seven times when Joseph is referred to as the man. Jacob delays the inevitable with a fretful whine. Look at verse six. Then Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? Jacob right now in this moment is making this all about him, acting as if his sons have done him wrong by volunteering information to the man that they had another brother back home. Jacob is right now thinking, man, if my sons would have just not said anything about Benjamin, this would not now be happening to me. Little does Jacob realize that it's God who's calling the shots and it's God who is coming after what is perhaps the final idol in Jacob's life. And that idol's name is Benjamin. Notice that Jacob is referred to, though, in this verse as Israel. Even though Jacob's behavior is not the best in this particular verse. But even though his behavior is not the best in this particular moment, he's on the cusp of an epic surrender. And so he is called Israel, which is the name that God gave to him many years prior in connection with his promises to bless him and to make of him a great people. And calling Jacob Israel In this verse, the narrator himself is wanting us to see Jacob, not for what he is in this precise moment, but for what he's becoming. At this point, it becomes evident that Judah is not the only one in a conversation with his dad. His brothers are in the room, and it is here that they speak up to defend themselves. Observe what they say in verse 7. But they said... The man questioned pointedly about us and our relatives saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? So they're wanting to defend themselves. But Judah is viewing this whole argument as a waste of time. He speaks up in verse 8 where the text says, Judah said to his father Israel, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, we as well as you and our little ones. In other words, he's saying that if Jacob does not send Benjamin with his brothers on this trip to Egypt, then they will not be getting any grain from Egypt 
And if they don't get grain from Egypt, then all of Jacob's sons are going to die, including Benjamin. And Jacob will die. And Jacob's grandchildren will die. Jacob simply must send Benjamin with his brothers on this trip to Egypt or everyone in the family is certainly going to die and Jacob will lose Benjamin anyway because of the famine. You get the logic of that? Judah then makes an offer to Jacob that shows how far he has come spiritually in the last 22 years. Observe what he says in verse 9. He says, I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. Judah is telling his father, if Benjamin is not returned to you, then I am yours for you to do with as you please, even if you want to take my life. He continues saying, if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame, literally the sin before you forever. He's telling his dad that whatever evil may end up befalling Benjamin, his dad is free to count that against Judah as if Judah himself committed that evil. Judah here is stepping up as the leader of the family in this situation and this assurance from Judah would tell Jacob that Judah is going to do absolutely all in his power to take care of Benjamin on this trip. And Judah actually is getting a little impatient. He's tired of waiting on his dad. In verse 10, he says to his father, for if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. Takes about a week to get to Egypt and a week back. So it seems about a month has gone by since Jacob first suggested the idea of them returning to Egypt for more food, yet everyone is still sitting around because Jacob has been refusing to send Benjamin. And Judah is saying, Dad, we could have been to Egypt and back twice by now. Let's get this show on the road and do this. You know, we can all understand certainly Judah's impatience here, but it doesn't take a whole lot of thought to also appreciate why Jacob would be reluctant to send Benjamin with his brothers on this trip. Think about it. 22 years prior, Jacob sent Joseph to Dothan to check on his brothers, and Joseph gets slain by a wild animal, or so Jacob thinks. A few months prior to this present moment that we're in right now, Jacob sends 10 of his sons to Egypt and Simeon gets imprisoned and does not return with his brothers. So now two down. Also, the purchase money was found in the mouth of the sacks of grain that his sons brought home from their last trip to Egypt, leaving Jacob with good reason to worry about them not just being treated as spies when they return, but now as criminals and thieves. And the Lord of the land is now demanding that Benjamin return with his brothers in order to prove that they're not spies. In other words, they're guilty until they can prove themselves innocent. 
by bringing Benjamin. And who knows what this unpredictable Lord of the land of Egypt might do when they do return with Benjamin. On top of all of these things, Benjamin is the only surviving son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, and Jacob now loves Benjamin with the kind of love that he once had for Joseph. In the last chapter, we saw how he wanted to protect Benjamin over all of his other sons. And he told his sons in the last chapter that if something bad were to happen to Benjamin, it would be the death of him. Meaning the death of Jacob. So for all of these reasons, it's going to take a miracle of God to get Jacob to let go of Benjamin and send him with his brothers on this trip. Yet the reality of the famine combined with the good work that God is doing in Jacob's heart finally brings Jacob to a beautiful moment of surrender and trust. And this brings us to the second development in this unfolding story of Shalom. Number two, Jacob sends his sons to Egypt with Benjamin, gifts, and a prayer. He sends his sons to Egypt with Benjamin, gifts, and a prayer. Observe what Israel does in verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry them down to the man as a present, a little balm and a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Pistachio nuts and almonds are always a safe gift for that special someone in your life. All of these items are unique products of the land of Canaan and would have been rare in Egypt. And so they would be appreciated by an Egyptian ruler for this reason. As for the purchase money that Jacob's sons found in their sacks of grain, Jacob tells them what to do about that in verse 12. He says to them, take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Jacob is saying, if it was a mistake that the purchase money was put in the mouth of your sacks, then show integrity and rectify that mistake. And then use the second portion of the money that you are taking with you to purchase more grain to bring back with you to Canaan. And now for the big moment. As for what to do with Benjamin, Jacob says in verse 13, Take your brother also and arise, return to the man. Wow. This is a huge step of surrender for Jacob to take. And there's no way that Jacob can stay sane and surrender Benjamin like this without leaning on God for help and trusting him to take care of Benjamin as well as Simeon and all of his sons. So listen to what Jacob says to his sons in verse 14. He essentially prays over them and he says, and may God almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your other brother and Benjamin. Benjamin. 
The name God Almighty translates the Hebrew El Shaddai. And it's no accident that Jacob is using this name for God. This is the name of God, which God revealed to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. When God promised Abraham that he would make him exceedingly fruitful through all generations and give the land of Canaan to his descendants. And God backs up those promises to Abraham by calling himself El Shaddai. Which can be translated as God who is sufficient. This name of God speaks of his unbridled power, his ability to do anything that he promises without any restraint. Jacob here is calling upon the covenant-making God of Abraham to go with his sons and to work on their behalf as they go to Egypt. In this benediction, Jacob is praying to God, essentially, and he's saying, may El Shaddai grant you Compassion in the sight of the man. The Hebrew word that is translated compassion is rechem. Rechem, which speaks of a deeply felt, sympathetic love that makes a person want to do good to a vulnerable person in need. And I want you to remember this word, rechem. It only shows up twice in Genesis. And the only other occasion is later in this chapter. But I love Jacob's balance here. He's sending gifts with his sons in the hopes of pleasing this Lord of the land of Egypt. Yet Jacob is ultimately trusting in El Shaddai to be the one who grants his son's compassion in the sight of this man. If it's going to happen, it's got to be God Almighty who makes it happen. And then notice Jacob's focus at the end of this benediction. He says, so that he will release to you your other brother, Simeon, who is now in prison, and Benjamin. That's what Jacob is here praying for. But what if God should choose not to allow Benjamin and Simeon to return home with his brothers, with their brothers? What if all the brothers end up being imprisoned and enslaved and lost to Jacob forever. Listen to what Jacob says at the end of verse 14. He says, and as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So amazing. Jacob here is trusting God to protect Benjamin and have Simeon return to him. But even if God doesn't do that, Jacob is resigned to that possibility also. Jacob is in a place of total surrender to whatever God and his sovereignty chooses. As far as Jacob knows, he may never see any of his sons again, yet he surrenders them all. And he's looking to El Shaddai to take care of what he has surrendered to him. By the way, how is God going to respond now that Jacob has opened his hand and surrendered Benjamin to him? Will God now take Benjamin from him and with glee and never allow him to see Benjamin ever again? 
No. God is going to give Benjamin back to Jacob. He's going to give Simeon back to Jacob. And he will be giving Joseph back to Jacob also. Jacob here opens his hand and surrenders Benjamin to the Lord. And in return, Jacob will end up with more in his hand than he ever dreamed possible. That's how amazingly good that God is. I've noticed in my own life that sometimes I hold on to a certain thing so tightly with a white-knuckled intensity. Letting no one take it from me, not even God. And God comes to me and he asks me to open my hand and surrender that thing to him. And I'm terrified to open my hand to him because I'm afraid that once I do, God will take that thing I love away from me. But God works and he prods and sometimes he uses pain and eventually he gets me to open my hand to him and say, okay, Lord, it's yours. You can have this. And I've noticed that whenever I've done that, half the time, God will take it from my hand. And half the time, he leaves it in my hand that is now open to him. And he starts putting new things in my opened hand. And basically says by his actions, I've been wanting to give you these extra blessings and put them in your hand, Milton but I couldn't get them into your hand as long as your hand was clutched so tightly around that thing that you were refusing to surrender to me. Well, God has brought Jacob to this amazing place of surrender. And by the end of the next chapter, Jacob is literally going to be speechless with all the staggering good that God just puts into his hand. God is a good God who is worth surrendering our lives and all of our precious things to. Anyway, with these words of prayer and benediction from Jacob echoing in their hearts, his sons embark on their trip. Look at verse 15. So the men took this present and they took double the money in their hand and Benjamin, then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. The brothers are still feeling pretty insecure about that extra money that they found in the mouth of their sacks of grain. And they feel the need to rectify that matter, which leads us to the third development in this unfolding story of Shalom. Number three, Joseph's brothers show integrity by addressing the matter of the money in their sacks. Observe how this happens beginning in verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did as Joseph said and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now, the men, speaking of Joseph's brothers, were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time 
that we are being brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. (laughs) It may seem strange to us that these brothers would mention their donkeys as a part of their concern, but it would have been their donkeys that are supposed to carry the sacks of grain back to Canaan. So their concern about the donkeys is essentially a concern that they will, they might not be able to send grain home for their families who might now starve to death. And that's why they're concerned here. By the way, uh, the, the word sacks is used in verse 18. You know what the Hebrew word is for sacks or for the for sack singular? Get ready to write this down. The Hebrew word for sack is sack. <laughs> totally serious. It's the easiest Hebrew vocabulary word to memorize. Anyway, governed by the fear in their hearts and the instructions that they receive from their dad to make things right, observe what Joseph's brothers do beginning in verse 19. The text says, So they came near to Joseph's house steward and spoke to him at the entrance or the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. And it came about when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks and behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full. So we have brought it back in our hand. We have also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. This is exactly the right thing for these brothers to do just in case the money was put in their sacks by mistake. The golden rule that Jesus gives to us in the Gospels is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If a cashier at a store gives you too much change or undercharges you for something that you are buying, you don't take the money and run and view that as God's provision. You let the cashier know so that they can make it right. That's the law of love. That's what loving others, loving that cashier as yourself looks like. That's what Joseph's brothers do here, provoking a beautiful response from Joseph's servant. This leads us to the next development in this unfolding story of Shalom. Number four, Joseph's brothers receive assurance about the money and they get Simeon back. Observe what Joseph's steward says in verse 23. The text says, he said, be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. As we saw at the beginning of the message, the expression be at ease is literally in the Hebrew shalom to you. Speaking for Joseph, this servant of Joseph is wanting Joseph's brothers to experience peace without any fear. And this is why he then tells them, do not be afraid. And then the steward makes a stunning announcement. 
He says, your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And we learned in the last chapter that it was Joseph who ordered the money to be put in the mouth of their sacks of grain. But here, Joseph's steward is telling them that it was God. The steward is basically saying, I was the one who had your money, and it was I who put the money in the mouth of your sacks, and I did so because my master instructed me to do so, and he instructed me to do so because God instructed him to have me do so. Long story short, he's saying, your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. Wow. These brothers sinned against Joseph. They sinned against God. They lied to their father and sinned against their father the way they did 22 years prior. And here, their God, whom they sinned against, and the God of their father, whom they sinned against, is giving them this treasure How do these brothers even begin to process the grace of all of this? And the grace gets poured on even more. Listen to what is said in the rest of verse 23 and into verse 24. The text says, then he brought Simeon out to them. So now they get their brother back. Then the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and they washed their feet and he gave their donkeys fodder. This is all sheer grace upon grace upon these brothers who had treated Joseph so wrongly two decades prior. Even their donkeys are being treated better than they treated Joseph. Then observe what Joseph's brothers do in verse 25. So they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. So they prepare their gift of pistachio nuts and almonds and honey, balm, aromatic gum and myrrh. These gifts would be paltry gifts in the face of all that Joseph is doing for them. But these gifts are prepared with noble intent. And Joseph would appreciate them as sacrificial gifts from a family that's being ravaged by famine. So far, so good. Joseph has seen his brothers. He noticed Benjamin, but Joseph has not formally greeted them yet. This brings us to the next development in this unfolding story of Shalom. Number five, Joseph converses with his brothers and breaks down when talking to Benjamin. Look at what happens in verse 26. When Joseph came home, They brought into the house to him the present which was in their hand and bowed to the ground before him. This is now the second time that these brothers are said to bow before Joseph, but this is the first time they're doing so with Benjamin. So this is now the fulfillment of one of Joseph's dreams from two decades prior because all 11 brothers are bowing down to him now. After Joseph receives the gift from them, observe what happens next in verse 27. 
Then he asked them about their welfare. He asked them about their shalom and said, is your old father well? Literally, does your old father have shalom of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, your servant, our father, is well. Literally, your servant, our father, has shalom. He is still alive. Jacob surrendered his precious son, Benjamin, to this man whom we know as Joseph, little realizing that this one he was surrendering his son to was more interested in Jacob's shalom than Jacob could even begin to imagine. Observe what Joseph's brothers do at the end of verse 28. They bowed down in homage. No doubt they're grateful and touched that this Lord of the land is so interested in their shalom and in the shalom of their father. It's at this point that Joseph gets a closer look at Benjamin. Observe what he does in verse 29. As he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? Perhaps they said yes to Joseph's question. Perhaps they nodded. Or maybe Joseph doesn't even wait for their reply. He looks at Benjamin and the text says, and he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. By the way, how old is Benjamin at this time? We actually don't know exactly. Ancient Jewish tradition suggests that Benjamin was born when Joseph was eight years old. And this suggestion fits the timeline that we see in the book of Genesis. And if that is the case, Benjamin is around 30, 31 years old right now. And Joseph last saw him when he was only nine. And as Joseph looks upon his brother all grown up right now, somehow he manages to speak the words, may God be gracious to you, my son. This is a tender benediction, a benediction that Joseph only gives to Benjamin and not to his other brothers. And notice that Joseph doesn't just say, may God be gracious to you. And he doesn't just say, may God be gracious to you, son, but may God be gracious to you, my son. This is amazingly personal language for a sovereign of a nation to be speaking to a foreigner upon meeting him for the very first time. And guys, it's even more personal than that. You know what the Hebrew is for my son? Benny. Benny. The first syllable of the name Benjamin is the word Ben, which means son. And here Joseph is looking at his brother for the first time in over 22 years. And he's saying to his little brother, may God be gracious to you, Benny. This whole benediction is loaded with the language of special favor and 
relationship, and it's just too much for Joseph. Observe what he does in verse 30. Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. We don't see this in the English of some translations, but we see here in verse 30 an amazing connection with what Jacob prayed back in verse 14. You will recall that when Jacob sent his sons to Egypt, he said to his sons, May God Almighty grant you compassion or rechem in the sight of the man. And here in verse 30, the Hebrew literally reads, Joseph hurried out for his compassions. His rechem grew warm over his brother. The very thing that Jacob prayed for is happening here for reasons that Jacob could not have even begun to imagine when he prayed his prayer. Seeing Benjamin standing before him is such an overwhelming experience for Joseph as the text tells us that Joseph hurried out and sought a place to weep and entered his chamber and wept there. It's been an amazing 22-year journey for Joseph, a journey full of pain and longing and distance from family and loss. How poignant it must have been for Joseph to now see all of his half-brothers and his full brother, Benjamin, standing in front of him right now. Observe what happens next in this unfolding story of Shalom. Number six, Joseph's brothers enjoy a meal with Joseph and are astonished by the seating arrangement. Joseph has got to get his act together here emotionally, and he does. Verse 31 says, then he washed his face and came out and he controlled himself and said, boy, these allergies are killing my eyes. How about them bears? Now he controlled himself and said, serve the meal. And so they do, but not in the way we might think. Look at verse 32. So they served him, Joseph, by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. So imagine three tables here. Joseph was at one table that was no doubt uh, elevated because he was the ruler of Egypt. Then there was a second table where the Egyptian servants of Joseph ate, and then there was a third table where Joseph's brothers ate directly in front of Joseph. And the reason for seating the Egyptians and and Joseph's brothers at separate tables, as the rest of the verse says, was because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome or an abomination to the Egyptians. So the Egyptians were racist. They thought they were superior to people of other cultures and especially the Hebrews and that being their attitude means that Joseph is straining at the limits of Egyptian custom 
And even having these Hebrew men eating in his house in this way. And observe the seating arrangement of the brothers, which Joseph no doubt had arranged. We see this in verse 33. Now they were seated before him. So in the presence of a sovereign like this, you don't just find a seat. You are brought to your seat at a table. So they didn't just take their seats. They were seated according to Joseph's instructions as the sovereign, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. Why would they look at each other in astonishment? Well, the seating arrangement. Virtually every commentator will tell you that these brothers are astonished that this Lord of the land of Egypt would so arrange the places at the table to have all of the brothers seated in the exact order of their births. And when the brothers are all seated, they take note of this. And the text says the men looked at one another in astonishment. When you run the math on this, as some commentators actually take the time to do, on the odds of this seating arrangement uh, happening, oh, it didn't, the graphic didn't. That is totally wrong. The graphic didn't transfer. I apologize uh, for that. But when you run the math on the odds of this seating arrangement happening randomly, you see why these brothers would be amazed. Keep in mind that Joseph would have known that Benjamin was the youngest, so of course he would know where to seat Benjamin. But the math equation for the seating of the other 10 is basically uh, 10 factorial, um, which basically you would do 1 times 2 times 3 times 4 times 5 times 6 times 7 times 8 times 9 times 10. If you do that equation, you realize that there were a total of 3,628,800 possible seating arrangements for 10 of Joseph's brothers. And Joseph just happened to seat them in the one arrangement that perfectly conforms to their ages. For understandable reasons, Joseph's brothers are blown away realizing that their host knew a great deal more about their family than they had realized, as one commentator says, or else he had some kind of supernatural power. So all they could do is be astonished at this. Something crazy is going on here, and they can't imagine what it is. And they're probably also thinking any man with this kind of knowledge of our family and our ages would have to know through God's help what we did to Joseph 22 years ago. And yet here we are in this house being feasted so wonderfully. What is going on? During the meal, Joseph does something that both continues to show grace to all of his brothers while at the same time testing them to see what their disposition is toward Benjamin. 
Are they still in the grip of jealousy like they used to be with Joseph? Joseph is going to find out. And this leads us to the final development in this unfolding story of Shalom. Number seven, Joseph shares larger food portions with Benjamin. And amazingly, his brothers don't seem to mind. Notice what Joseph does in the first part of verse 34. He took portions to them from his own table. This is an amazing thing that Joseph is doing. One of the ways that a ruler would show honor to his guests would be uh, to have portions of his food from his table brought to his guests saying, hey, try this. You got to try this. And we're told here that Joseph is doing this for all of his brothers. Only in this case, we're told that he himself is actually getting up from his table and taking portions of food from his table and personally bringing those portions of food to his brothers, humbly serving them and showing each of them honor. What amazing condescension and what amazing grace. But while Joseph is showing this honor to all of his brothers, he shows a special favoritism toward Benjamin. Observe what is said at the end of verse 34. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. Why would Joseph do this? Well, his aim is to see if his brothers would show any jealousy against Benjamin the way they once did with Joseph. Would they resent Benjamin for these extra portions? Would they whisper their complaints to one another? Would their countenance change ever so subtly? They're all seated in full view of Joseph right now, and he would be able to see if there was any shred of jealousy on display. And wonderfully, the chapter ends with Joseph's brother seemingly unfazed by this favoritism of Benjamin. Observe what the text says in verse 34. This is how the chapter ends. So they feasted and drank freely with him. By the way, the Hebrew expression translated drank freely usually in the Old Testament means to become drunk. And it doesn't have to mean that here, but it certainly means that they imbibed freely. And the more they drank, the more they would have lost their inhibitions and the more likely it would become that they would show their true feelings if they had any resentment against Benjamin for this special treatment that he is receiving. Joseph is given a special benediction to Benjamin exclusively, and now this fivefold portions. Yet as one commentator says, even when the more generous use of wine has removed the restraint from their tongues, the men still ring true. There's not a whisper of jealousy in the room. And Joseph had to have been thrilled to sit there and to witness this. But Joseph is not done. He has one more test to go before he reveals himself to his brothers. And we find that in the next chapter. And we will study that in the month of August. So we'll stop here for today. But let's just savor a couple things before we
close. You know, it's a wonderful thing to witness the slow motion miracle that God has done in Joseph's brothers' hearts and giving them victory over the sin of jealousy. Jealousy is a serious sin. It's what caused Cain to murder his brother Abel. It's what caused the religious leaders to hand over Christ to be crucified. It's what caused Joseph's brothers to strip him of his tunic and to end up selling him into slavery. And it's a sin, the sin of jealousy, that comes naturally to all of us, including me. And Joseph realizes that if he and his brothers are going to be united as the spiritual heads of the nation of Israel, then they must defeat this sin of jealousy. And that's why Joseph is being so careful to put them through the process that he is putting them through before he reveals himself to them and invites them to Egypt so that he can provide for them the way that he wants to. How can you defeat the sin of jealousy? How can I? Well, we learn something even in this story. It's kind of hard to be jealous when you've been shaken to your core with the fear of God, the way Joseph's brothers have experienced. And when you know the judgment that you deserve because you're keenly aware of your sin, yet you begin to see how lavishly God is bestowing amazing grace upon you. Joseph's brothers know they deserve God's judgment, yet they're being lavished with undeserved favors And they know they're being treated infinitely better than what they deserve. How can they be jealous of someone under such circumstances? They're sitting in the house of the Lord of the land of Egypt, eating his food rather than being in prison. Who cares if one brother gets a little more than another? If you want to overcome the sin of jealousy, preach the gospel to yourself. Cultivate the fear of God in you. Remind yourself of the hell that you deserve for your sins. And then cherish the cross of Christ and his blood that was shed for you to have atonement. And cherish every blessing from God in the gospel as an expression of his ill-deserved grace in your life. And if you do that and you have that mindset, you will find yourself with little room in your heart for this petty thing called jealousy. Lastly, in the, in the last chapter, the Lord of the land of Egypt leveled an accusation against Jacob's sons, telling them that you're spies. And no amount of defense or explanation on their part could erase that indictment, that accusation that kept coming against them. The only thing that they could do to erase that accusation was to have their father send his most beloved son to come and appear before this Lord of the land who was making the accusation. And Jacob had to be willing to send that beloved son to Egypt in order that the accusation over his son's heads could be erased. In the New Testament, God willingly sends his beloved son to earth knowing that he would die and be crucified on a cross so that the charges against us for our crimes could be dropped. 
and we could stand before God in peace. To those who believe in Jesus, God says you are forgiven of all of your sins, all accusations against you, as legitimate as they are, are dropped. And you now have shalom with me. And he invites us who believe in Jesus into his house. He makes us family and he gives us a seat at his table and he honors all of us with portions that are far more than we could ever consume. If you have never believed in Jesus, who has appeared before God on your behalf, believe in him today and call upon his name. If you do that, you will hear words similar to what Jacob's sons hear in Genesis 43. They hear words like, Shalom to you. Do not be afraid. Your God has given you treasure. May God be gracious to you, my son. And all such things and so much more are said in the New Testament to all those who believe in Jesus. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we relish being in your presence, even being here right now in these moments is us in your house being feasted by you as you give us portions from your table for us to enjoy and feast upon and the greatest portion that you happily share with us is your son whom we can feast upon All of us who have believed in you, Lord Jesus, we are the recipients of such staggering grace. And we, if we truly understood the depth of our sin and the full nature of your grace, we would be as astonished and even more astonished than Joseph's brothers are. This God who knows us so utterly. And yet, he's a God of justice a God of holiness, a God who knows our sin, a God who brings discipline for our sin, and yet he loves us and lavishes grace in a perfect admixture of that is exactly what we need. May we be a people, Lord, who are dazzled by your grace, astonished by it, And forgive us for not being as astonished as we should be. We should frequently, Lord, be feasting on your goodness and looking at each other in astonishment. Over who you are and your goodness to us. And given all of that, Lord, you are a God who is so worthy of our full surrender. And may we be a people surrendered to you.
We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you in the next few moments, and we ask that you would receive what we surrender to you of our funds that you have blessed us with, and do much, Lord, with all that is given in this offering for the support of the great work of the gospel that is happening here in this community and around the world. At the same time, we surrender ourselves to you. And we do so in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,